everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we have our latest installment in the Oscar Contender series. We'll be talking about three more technical categories today, makeup and hairstyling, costume design, and cinematography. We will also get into some Oscar news. We had some crazy announcements over the past week about changes to the telecast, the fan favorite, the Oscar cheer moment. I promise we will dive into all of that today. Really some not great news recently. And when we released our episode talking about Cinderella winning the fan favorite moment, that was like right when it came out. And now that I've had time to process that and all of this happening, I'm just all in on what you said in that the Academy Mm -hmm. needs to eat everything they've done to themselves and they deserve this and okay I'm getting ahead of myself with us today also we have guest James Konofsky from the out of Oscar podcast welcome James thanks for joining us it's been a while yeah thank you as someone with no professional experience in any of these crafts I am excited to be here (laughs) But yes, I host Out of Oscar. So we're mainly talking about the past on that show. So it's a good change of pace to be here talking about a current ceremony. I'm sure. And yeah, we're excited to have you today. Um, Love your podcast as well. So let's just dive right into these changes to the Oscars. So the Academy announced last Tuesday that they would be removing eight categories from the live portion of the telecast. Instead, those awards will be given out during the hour before the telecast, and then they will be played back or edited back into the telecast in some fashion. The categories that they've decided to cut from the live telecast are all three shorts categories. So documentary short, live action short, and animated short makeup and hairstyling, production design, sound, score, and editing. Funny that you have to edit these moments back in and they're cutting editing from the live portion. Didn't they do that like four years ago as well? Like they they almost cut editing out as well as like cinematography and whatnot, the core elements of cinema. Yeah. Back then too, they were saying like, we'll award these moments during a commercial break like the the commercial break is when they'll receive their oscar and of course like there was a big backlash around that present all 24 came about and the academy eventually walked back their decision do you guys think well first what do you think about this announcement and two do you think the academy will walk it back now that there is some pressure on them from artisans in the different branches Personally, I can see the Academy standing their ground this time, which I find really frustrating. I also think it's incredibly disrespectful to do this to nominees who might have been preparing their moment because this is post-nominations. We're pandering to a network who, in the end, doesn't have your interest at heart. And I think this is, like, frightening because it signals sort of like a decline of the Academy as an institution. I think this is what will lead to the true decline of an almost century-long institution and not ratings. And it's like, I understand how they wanted to edit it a little bit like the Tony Awards when they present their like more technical craft categories, but people are not interested in comedy. I think they will never wrap their head around that. No one wants to see more comedy when you see the Oscars. And just don't award these categories if you're not going to give them the attention they deserve. 
Now, I know that June will miss out a lot. So I'll, if that happens, a lot of June's wins will be relegated mm-hmm. to, you know, this B-roll footage. So if you guys had something to say about that, I mean, go ahead. I mentioned that last week, you know, that it's very possible that Dune could win five of these categories. That's a huge deal. That movie's made over $400 million worldwide. So miss me with the popularity argument here. This is all about Disney. This is ABC and Disney wanting to put Disney properties right up front. Because if you were truly concerned about popularity, Dune is the most popular Best Picture nominee that we have. So I I don't get it. If we're thinking about Dune, it just it does not make any sense to me besides just looking at it through a Disney lens. Best visual effects wasn't cut. Why do you think that is? Black Widow, Shang-Chi, Spider-Man No Way Home. That's pretty clear to me. Yeah, you don't have to tell me twice. I <laughs> I think it's horrible. You know, seeing the backlash from guilds themselves, like the editors writing a letter saying how disrespectful it is is amazing. And hearing that they want the original score composers to boycott the ceremony, I mean, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, you know, to to make a point, you're going to miss the ceremony for the most prestigious award that you've been nominated for. Like, that's unheard of. And I read a tweet. It was like, oh, so the Oscars want to be performing in an empty room in one take with no makeup done and you know it's a silent room it's like okay let's Mm. do it you know try to produce that show and make it make a million people watch this let alone the many more that you'll have and yes i think it's definitely been declining but doing it this way isn't going to increase viewership they're just chasing an audience that doesn't exist live tv viewership is down across the board there's no way regardless of what they do to change the telecast, that the Oscars are going to pull NFL-level ratings. It's just not going to happen. So why, again, are you chasing this mystery group who's somehow going to say, you know what, now that they're not airing makeup and hairstyling, I'm going to watch the Mm -hmm. Oscars. Like, who is that person? I don't know anyone like that. So I feel like, yeah, I just want it to be like four hours on PBS – Add more categories. Make it this true celebration. I mean, the theme this year is movie lovers unite. Are you kidding me? We talk about how the Tony Awards relegate those um, other categories sort of to the sidelines. But at least the thing that we can expect from that show is the consistency. Like if you've watched the Tonys since like, I don't know, for the past decade, every ceremony has more or less been the same. But the Oscars constantly want to reinvent the wheel. Like, the wheel is fine. <laughs> it's a product that works um, and it worked exceedingly well in the last century. I think it's more a decline on the part of just interest and not the actual, I don't know, ceremony itself. But everything went downhill after they started presenting awards in the Oscars like they did in 2004. <laughs> so I blame that. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. A terrible moment. Really? And, you know, thinking about like the Tonys and the Emmys, the Emmys have the creative arts Emmys where they have two nights of just technical categories, but there's so many Mm -hmm. categories right at the Emmys. So it makes sense to do that. And that works well for them. But the Oscars have always felt, I think, different in that they show these technical categories. I mean, I 
found out what sound mixing meant because of the Oscars. I found out, you know, what cinematography was because they were airing these types of categories. And I just worry that, you know, how are you actually going to pull in a new generation of film lovers, of young film lovers, if you're not showing them respect for how a movie is made? And again, like I know I'm just on the soapbox today, but I think the main problem here is that the Academy they are embarrassed of the Oscars, and that is just vile to me. It's like, why are you embarrassed mm, of yourselves? Yeah. Like, just, you should be embarrassed about Jimmy Kimmel going to embarrass an audience for a bit, not score or editing. So then just to list these really quickly, the fan favorite, those final five will be announced on March 3rd, or that's when the voting ends. And then the Oscar cheer moment, we did get five moments, which I had no idea what this was. I thought it was like five best moments of the year. And then we're getting moments from 20 years ago. So we have our five Avengers assemble in Avengers Endgame, Effie whites. And I am telling you, I'm not going from dream girls, the flash speed force. No idea what that means. Zack Snyder's justice league, Neo dodging bullets from the matrix and Spider-Man team up from Spider-Man. No way home. We have two from this year. But, like, look at the property of the two from this year. It's like, we know what it's about at the end of the day. It's always going to lead back to our Lord and Savior. Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so confused. Like, this one is a depressing, depressing list. And then, like, the Dream Girls moment is so random to me compared to the others. Like, the others I maybe could have guessed, especially the Spider-Man team up from this year and something from an Avengers movie. But this moment in Dreamgirls, I was like, you're going to do this and not nominate Jennifer Hudson for Best Actress this year? Like, I I don't understand what happened here. They really do just need Spider-Man to win. They want it to win both of these made-up categories. We're going to move right into Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Our nominees in this category are Coming to America, Cruella, Dune, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and House of Gucci. And our guild here is the Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. This ceremony did happen already. So being the Ricardos actually won in one of the categories. And Coming to America and Cruella were the other big winners. So we'll go over the nominees and winners just to remind you for how they did. But Coming to America won three out of three of its categories. So I think that's huge. Our makeup and hairstylist here... Mike Marino, he's the character makeup designer. This is his first Oscar nomination. Stacey Morris, she's the hair department head. This is also her first Oscar nomination. And Carla Farmer, who is another hair department head. This is her first Oscar nomination. And then her and Stacey also worked on King Richard this year. And then just to note, Coming to America from 1989 was also nominated for makeup. And then later we'll talk about costume design as well. So I think this showing up again, you know, we talk about sequels and wondered if the Suicide Squad would show up again like it happens. Yeah. And I also want to point out that Mm -hmm. Carla Farmer, if you do want to watch a fun Oscar nomination reaction moment, I definitely recommend finding the video that I believe her daughter posted. It's been going around on Twitter and we can share it, but she is just overjoyed to be nominated. And again, this is Another reason why we need these categories to be shown during the live telecast, because those moments, that's why we watch the Oscars. We want to see 
these people celebrated and celebrating and history being made. So I think just as a movie, did you guys like coming to America? And then uh, more specifically, I think, what did you think of the hair and makeup in the film? I saw Coming to America like ages ago. Like this isn't one that I saw it when it came out because my dad's a big fan of coming Mm -hmm. to America from the 80s. And so we made a big deal about a sequel coming out. And I I remember seeing the trailer and seeing, I think he's like Baba turns around in the trailer and thinking, oh, I smell like a makeup nomination. It might happen. It might not happen. We'll see. But I definitely didn't watch the film thinking it was going to be nominated for an Oscar, kind of like Drive My Car. That's a separate (laughs) thing. And I don't know. The movie is like, it's okay. I do prefer the original. I think the makeup and the costumes were the highlight. And just to your point about Carla Farmer's uh, reaction that was going around, like this is only a year after the first two black women won in the makeup and hairstyling category. So it's, you know, once again, it makes the whole cutting out thing even more frustrating. Did you guys like coming to America? I haven't seen the original, so I don't think I should be judging watching a sequel. I did like how it incorporated those original moments to kind of explain what was going on. When there's a country called Nextoria, I don't know, you kind of lose me right then. It was fine for me. I didn't love it, but it was pretty to look at all of the prosthetics that they did, the hairstyles. I think that was the biggest component of the movie. And thankfully, we're talking about that first. What did you think about it, Sophia? I think watching this movie, I just expected, because I had waited until after the nominations came out to watch it, I was really watching it through the lens of this is a nominee for one particular category. So this is what I'm going to be looking for. And because of that, I wasn't as disappointed in the movie as I think I would have been if I would have just watched it, like gone to the movie theater to see it. I don't have a strong connection to the original, but that being said, I do think it played up the nostalgia with the certain characters and how the prosthetics were used. I think this movie is a really phenomenal prosthetics showcase. We have a lot of pieces, a lot of different characters. We get aging makeup. If you read just about how these pieces were built and constructed, it took hours upon hours and weeks to get these actors like fitted into these prosthetics and to become these characters again. And then I think just too, if we're thinking Mm -hmm. about separate from the prosthetics, just the hair and the makeup, James, I'm glad you pointed that out about, you know, how few black women win Oscars. And this is a category where it's happened before. And I think it's important to think about like this movie and the original coming to America, like the importance that these characters and the story has for um, the black community. I learned that there's a coming to America makeup line through Mm -hmm. Woma beauty that actually has like different eyeshadows and lipsticks that are all inspired by the looks in this movie. So it does, I think, continue to strike a chord with audiences and makeup and hair that's a way that it can do that i think i remember writing down like similar to what you said that it's a prosthetic showcase on the level of say like pinocchio Mm -hmm. from last year um where you have a complete transformation 
where you can't see the actor underneath it. Like to think that that's Arsenio Hall in most of those roles mm-hmm. is unbelievable. They transform in, into a white man, essentially, like a Jewish man. It's crazy. I mean, they did that in the original. So like you said, also plays up the nostalgia of that, but maybe with more modern mm-hmm. technology and craft, which I also like. I also think it's funny that like transforming Eddie Murphy is like a good yeah. omen because Norbert oh, wow. was nominated for makeup and hairstyling. Um, and I think coming to America has the potential to upset because of how widely used its craft is like there is not just a single showcase like a certain film on this list um we'll mm-hmm. get there though and i just like the i just like the wide variety of characters and especially um arsenio hall's transformation mm-hmm. into baba that witch doctor yes. i think he is or the spiritual advisor is incredible down to like the contacts in his eyes and that's absolutely my favorite moment in this film because it's also new a new character so nick did you have a favorite use of like hair or makeup in the movie i would just say when all of the women are dancing like when they come in for these ceremonial dances i think the afros the braids the headdresses those were all phenomenal and there was so much of a variety that that was stunning to me And just to touch on your prosthetic thing, there was one character that Eddie Murphy played. I had no idea it was him. Like, there are multiple Mm -hmm. Eddie Murphys here, and I just completely missed one of them. I was like, okay, that is great. Yeah, and I like that you brought up how technology has shifted over the years, and now they can get more creative with prosthetics, like, as time has gone on, and get more inventive with these characters. I agree. Like, there were some looks where I really did not recognize who these characters were and it had been so long too since I had seen the original um, that it continued to surprise I think and I would say just another favorite of mine Kiki Lane in this movie is just stunning I think all of her makeup is just gorgeous like the golds that are highlighted and used like in her highlighter in her eye makeup but also her hair I think you know showing natural hair in this movie was something that was really important to the hair team. And I loved how she has this really stunning updo with these gold hair accessories in it. So I think that would probably be my other favorite from the movie. Our next nominee is Cruella. Cruella won one award at the Makeup and Hairstylist Guild. Here we have Nadia Stacy, who's a hair and makeup designer. She is a longtime collaborator with Emma Stone, just in a sense of they work together on The Favorite, and that's kind of where they're relationship started and then they wanted to work together on this one we also have naomi dunn who's the personal hairstylist and makeup artist for emma thompson this is her second oscar nomination and we have julia vernon who is the crowd hair and makeup supervisor and it's her first oscar nomination i actually really like the makeup in cruella just thinking about it because it isn't as heavy on the prosthetics prosthetic work can obviously be really important to the film or to specific characters that you're creating but here I think of the makeup much more as this fashion choice that you can really look at compared to the costumes that these characters are wearing we have these like very punk looks with Emma Stone's character and then we have more of like a reserved 50s high society look when we're looking at 
the Baroness or Emma Thompson. So I liked that in this movie. What did you guys think of Cruella and the hair and makeup in Cruella? A lot of Cruella had to bank on the visual elements for me to be satisfied just because the actual origin story of Cruella really doesn't mean much to me. So far as the makeup goes, I really do love, especially in Cruella, that departure from the powdered face that's just sort of hostile and a bit cold in the Glenn Close version to this glam rock meets punk rock meets, I would say, Mm -hmm. like drag. It's very draggy, some of the makeup in this film. I also find it amazing how versatile the actual hairstyling for Cruella was. They only used two wigs and they would just add bangs and modify it along the way, which I think is incredible and also very challenging as a as a hair department head to to undertake that. You have two versions of a wig, but there's also like so many looks that come from that. I also do appreciate, like we said, almost in the same regard as coming to America with contemporary upgrade. I do like how Corella's makeup in this version is a little bit more contemporary, even if it's set in the past. I didn't really pay much attention to the Baroness though. So my my admiration comes from Cruella, but now it makes me wonder if you can even win this category anymore without prosthetics. Yeah, it does make you wonder because I think sometimes when we look at winners or we think of winners for these categories, it's the most makeup or the most costumes or production design. It's not certain intricacies mm-hmm. that are really looked at um, because when you open voting, I think right to the general membership, it's like, what do you see first and foremost? And I feel like in a category like this, that is prosthetics. So I think that's a good point. I think for me, I loved reading about their work on this and how Nadia had a lot of freedoms with playing with the era and trying to updo this character that everybody knows in some way, shape or form. So she really wanted to highlight the transition from the Estella character into becoming Cruella and how she hides behind this mask until she embraces her identity as this witch, really. And then she her makeup becomes more elegant and she knows who she wants to be. You know, she's facing off against the Baroness. So I think that contrast is amazing. They use so many different versions of this mask to conceal who she is. And that's probably my favorite element. I think when I think of Cruella, I think of the future when that's painted on her face. And that was such Mm -hmm. a creative way for her to Mm -hmm. literally write, you know, what the 60s felt like, what this punk movement was. And it felt like a new era. Something else about the wigs, too. She talked about how the white hair is manufactured so differently and it just acts completely different to the black hair on the other side of the wig. So getting that to function as one wig, one thing, that's not something I would ever have thought of before. Yeah. And that wig is iconic. I mean, that's what when you think of Cruella, you think of that Mm -hmm. black and white hair. When you think of, you know, people being Cruella for Halloween over the years, it's always like the wig is the like signature element. But Mm. yeah, I had also never thought about that before, how those two different types of hair or colors of hair would be completely different to work with and to manipulate. I think Stacey said like, just a pure white look to Halloweeny, Like it just looked mm-hmm. like a costume that they had bought off the rack or a wig that they had bought off the rack. 
So she had to find like this off-white cream to work with. Mm-hmm. And I just love that precision. Um, Cause at the end of the day, it just looks, you know, black and white to us, but on camera in person, that sort of trial and error that you have with color palette is just I don't know, really admirable. But my favorite look is probably the first time she steals the Baroness's spotlight when she jumps on top mm-hmm. of the car. Just like the details in the face, obviously, but also just that drag element that the makeup artist was talking about uh, really comes to fruition there, I think. I think my favorite look is the character Artie, who kind of becomes her friend, works at this like consignment store or like vintage clothing shop that Estella frequents. And Artie has this very cool, like punky androgynous David Bowie inspired look and that was I think another character in the movie that I really liked and I think the makeup really helped put us in the period and very much give us the mood of London at the time. Next up we have Dune. It didn't win any awards at the Makeup Artists and Hairstylist Guild. Here we have Donald Moat who is the hair makeup and prosthetic designer and makeup department head. This is his first Oscar nomination. Love Larson was the prosthetic designer, and this is his third nomination. And Ava Von Barr, who is the prosthetic makeup artist for the Baron Harkonnen, played by Stellan Skarsgård, and this is her third Oscar nomination. How do we think about the Dune hair, the Dune makeup? What do we love? Maybe this is sort of like a something that we can agree on on a consensus, but I think that even though... A lot of the makeup work in this film is surprisingly subtle. You just need to write or conjure up an FYC ad with the Baron, and that's enough to compel people to vote Mm -hmm. for you. I think the work that's done to the Baron is even like Paita as well. And Dave Bautista's character, is it Glossu Raven? Raven? I just think that you really just need those three people on your cover of the FYC and people are compelled to vote for you because the work on Lady Jessica, for instance, is incredibly subtle. There's also characters that you just don't see the face of. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I get slight like Mad Max Fury Road vibes from a win in this Mm -hmm. department and that just being at the top of the screener list because your film is nominated for 10 Oscars will help you gain traction here. See, the Baron and the black oil effect is just fantastic and is far and away my favourite example of of makeup in this film and it's just an ingrained image that i just associate Mm -hmm. with june definitely he's so scary like in that fat suit which i love reading that stellan skarsgård loved like being in the prosthetics for that part and he had a lot of fun with it i also would encourage everyone to check out our interview with donald moat which is out now he was great talking about like all of the subtleties in the makeup and with makeup and hairstyling, sometimes having to pull back, you know, being tempted to add more to your characters, but then ultimately settling on what you thought was right along. And an example with the Baron Harkonnen that I thought was great was he talked about how initially this character was supposed to have red hair and they were like, no, no, we got to just make him bald. He also was supposed to have like pustules on him, like giant sores. And then they decided to remove those and just keep it, I think, very simple. And that's Mm. what really works for that character. I'm going to stay true to myself here when I'm talking about my favorite use of hair and makeup. And that's Oscar Isaac's (laughs) beard. 
frankly. I think that is like the best use of hairstyling in the film, really. And then Timothy Chalamet's hair as well. They both just have gorgeous hair. And Donald talked about that in our interview, too, because, of course, we could not resist asking him about that. Now, I forget. Was the Baron smash from pass? Oh, hard pass. (laughs) I think any of the Harkonnens were passes. Yeah, speaking of the Baron... They had five people working on this one character, this one set of prosthetics. I read how difficult it was for them for that oil bath scene. And they had to poke holes in the prosthetics for it to sink, even though it only weighed 20 to 25 pounds, which I would have thought would have been way heavier. But, you know, having to work in these conditions and you're like, how the hell are we going to do this? And they get it done and it looks incredible. And yeah, that image of the oil just sliding down his forehead as he sinks back under is just ingrained in my brain. This character started as this menacing, vicious gorilla and Stellan just embodies that. All of the influences, the Middle Eastern and North African influences here, really highlighting the face tattoos, which I loved. One part from Lady Jessica in that dream sequence when she has that veil and the words are written across her face and along the background, but then also with the Fremen and the really, really subtle face tattoos under their eyes. And I think those are just really subtle but impactful ways to use makeup to define who these characters are. Okay, next we have the eyes of Tammy Faye. The Eyes of Tammy Faye was nominated for three Guild nominations, but one zero. We have Linda Dowds, who's our makeup department head. This is her first nomination. Stephanie Ingram, who is the hair department head. This is her first nomination. And Justin Raleigh, who's on special makeup effects. This is his first nomination. So we have a team of first timers, which is pretty cool here. I think when I first saw The Eyes of Tammy Faye, even just the trailer, I knew this is going to be a makeup and hairstyling contender, especially because Tammy Faye Baker herself, I think, is known for her makeup in addition to other things, of course. But that makeup is just like unmistakably her. What did you guys think of the movie and more specifically of the use of hair and makeup in the film? Well, I would say that this nomination makes me laugh and then makes me cry. It was one that I took out of my predictions at the last minute and replaced with Cyrano because I was just in my mind, I could not wrap my head around people thinking that the makeup work in this film was successful. That Chastain, who has a very old Hollywood chiseled face, does not fit near the like same <laughs> facial structure of Tammy Faye and they've just butchered her face to make it appear that way. And it's awful to like sit here and have bad things to say about professional work. But I also think there was just no fluency in the work. Like there was not a thread between young Tammy Faye and then evangelical Tammy Faye. She just has insane chipmunk uh, muscle. And I don't know, like this is, there's close-ups, which makes me think that they were really proud of the makeup work in the film. Similar, like in like, you know, the darkest Mm -hmm. hour when they kept doing the close-ups, you knew that they were proud of the makeup in that film because you weren't going to find the scenes. Like, it was seamless. But I don't know. It's honestly like if Bohemian Rhapsody was nominated for makeup and hairstyling. And Jessica looks just... I don't know. She just doesn't have the face for Tammy Faye. I know it's Jessica's project, Jessica Chastain's project. But 
someone mentioned this. I don't know who it was saying that like Karen Black would be a great Tammy Faye just because they have like a similar face. I could definitely see that. Like if they would have, if somehow we could put Karen Black in this movie. Mm -hmm. In the timeline. Yeah. Nick, are you as cold on this makeup? We saw this movie Mm -hmm. together and I remember when we first saw the cheeks at the beginning you and i were both kind of howling in our seats we're like what's going on here the cheeks to me are not believable it's almost too big compared to actual tammy faye and i don't think they're getting nominated for aging andrew garfield in this movie it really is just her and i don't think it's enough but yes i think the use of prosthetics and makeup and then how jessica you know adds this character to her it's like full camp And sure, it works, but it's, like, too much for me. I actually feel, and I completely agree, like, Jessica Chastain's face, like, she's so, like, angular and classic Hollywood beautiful that it's it's hard, I think, for her face to hold this makeup and this type of prosthetic work. I think that the makeup is actually less distracting as it gets more intense later in the movie because, you know... Uh, being familiar with the real life Tammy Faye Baker and of course Ginger Minj's snatch game performance of Tammy Faye on Drag Race I was fully ready for the wild lip liner the 25 coats of mascara that just like take over her entire face that that I feel like wasn't as shocking to me and I think was better kind of in thinking about this woman's personal identity and how her makeup got more dramatic as she aged and as she continued to unravel. And it kind of, I think shows the inner conflict that she has. Like the last 20 minutes, you know, when she confronts those people, she goes up and saying like, this is Mm -hmm. my name's Tammy. You shouldn't judge people. And it's like, Oh, okay. Tammy's a saint. Apparently her makeup is actually like kind of good in that moment because it does feel slightly less stripped down and true to like, Tammy's in a turmoil at the time whereas I think for the bulk of the film they were so set on trying to replicate how the real life Tammy Faye looked which like we've mentioned now many times does not fit Jessica Chastain's face. I agree though that I think like the makeup at the end was probably the most successful for me just also because you do I think with these films when you have real people who aren't very glamorous who wear a lot of makeup you do almost want it, I think, to not look professionally done. Like, you want it to look like she put this lip liner on, like, in her rearview mirror while she was sitting in the car. Or mm. she felt like she needed an extra coat of mascara when she was, like, at the gas station and just decides, like, okay, I'm going to do it up right now with all of my eye makeup. So I think that, like, that that is something in the movie that worked better for me. Okay, so the final nominee is House of Gucci, the film's only nomination it didn't win any of its three nominations from the guild goran lonstrom is this prosthetics designer for jared leto <laughs> this is his second nomination anna karen Locke is the wig maker and hairstylist for yours truly jared leto this is her first nomination and frederick aspera is the hairstyle artist for miss lady gaga this is his first nomination 
cast of Gucci, imagine making such a big deal out of this film, thinking Lady Gaga is going to get in, trying to watch this when it comes out early, thinking MGM, you've got you've got a pretty soiled gold mine. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's a, you've got like a gold mine here because it's it's not a gold mine. But imagine thinking that this is a film that's going to perhaps surprise in a few categories. You paid all this attention to House of Gucci and it gets nominated in one category. How does that make you feel? I think when I realized everything was going downhill with this movie's Oscar nominations was actually when I saw the costume miss because that's a category where we had been talking about it think very securely like it's going to get in here you know we talked about Jared Leto potentially missing because supporting actor was wide open Lady Gaga felt pretty sure but I think just watching this movie I didn't have a bad time with it when I went to go see it I was able to find fun I think in it just with how ridiculous it was that being said here we are Mm -hmm. again I mean Jared Leto He's back to haunt us like he he haunts us every Oscar season. And I will truly never understand the choice to make Paolo Gucci fat, like to make him wear a fat suit when he does not look like he's wearing a fat suit in real life. Like the cartoon Mm. aspect of this character was actually something that was irritating to me watching this movie. So... I find this nomination like unsurprising and I do think the prosthetic work is good. I don't understand like the choices that were made early on for this character in particular. I still think it's shocking that it's nomination showed up here and not in costume design. Also the fact that two out of these three nominees are personal stylists for Jared Leto. (laughs) I really don't want to have to talk about his prosthetics. Like, Yes, it transformed him. I can still see him just like I still saw Jessica Chastain under those prosthetics too. So that's why these aren't working for me, even though people did say like, oh, I couldn't even see the actor. It was all character. I was like, well, did we watch the same movie? But this is Gaga's movie all over. I mean, the wig is insane, but you you know what? Like she goes in 100% and... When it's flopping on her head as she's getting pummeled, the the Twitter jokes were like, someone really used some good glue on that wig. And well, you know, like any good drag queen. I'm sorry. No, I'm just like thinking of that moment in the movie and how hard I was laughing. What an experience that was. But yeah, great wig glue. Mm-hmm. Like Great work team keeping that on while Adam went to town. Actually, I encountered that comment a lot that people were like that was jared leto under there oh but then he's getting nominated because what a transformation i think the absolute disdain for jared leto is definitely a film twitter bubble thing even though i'm i'm all for it to be on a wider spectrum but that's just that's just me the makeup work on paolo is so overcooked and overbaked it just reminds me of a sort of film that would come around but doesn't really, that it tries to hit as many AT elements as possible to get as many Oscar nominations as possible. Imagine a film, you know, that has makeup work like this that's transformative and then also has like an end credit song. And it's like you get the idea that it wants to get an original song nomination, a makeup nomination, perhaps for its actors. It's a period film, so it's going for costume as well. 
probably my favorite look in this film is definitely Gaga at the runway. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, <laughs> and talk about another hysterical moment in this movie. And so you mentioned that too about like Jared Leto having personal stylist. Frederick Asperis is Lady Gaga's personal stylist as well through a lot of her like film and television appearances. Um, he worked with her on A Star is Born, American Horror Story. And it was cool, I think, reading about the work that he did here to like map out all of the hair and makeup for every single scene. They would like work hand in hand with Janty Yates, the costume designer, going through every piece of jewelry. And they never repeated a single item which is unbelievable like that's very very cool I think and they also like he mentioned that he had to write down and keep track of every single hair product used for every look for continuity so when Ridley Scott would film it they wanted Gaga to have this continuity as Patrizia so he had to really like in a very detailed way keep track of all of the products that were used and In a similar way, I think, too, in Cruella, how the characters, their makeup is really indicative of the time, especially if we're contrasting Estella and the Baroness. I like how the team here mentioned, too, that Italian beauty trends were very behind the states. So a lot of women in the 70s were doing 60s cat eye or like very 60s beauty trends instead of the 70s when our movie is set. What we would see in the U.S. for makeup, like in Licorice Pizza or an example like that, we're not going to see in House of Gucci because of where the Italians were with trends. Oh, I love that point. Thank you for bringing that up. I didn't, that didn't occur to me. Yeah. Anything we can say to make it mm-hmm. a little bit better. So, James, what would your write-in vote be for this category? Oh, I strayed off the short list, but I took a while like deliberating what I actually was going to pick. Um, I ultimately went for the Green Knight, mainly for the transformation of Ralph Innocent into the witch, which is phenomenal. Love it. That's a great pick. The Green Knight really just needs to show up everywhere. Like that's mm-hmm. just a common theme this award season. My write-in vote is everybody's talking about Jamie. This was another prime film, much smaller, not nominated, but there's a lot of amazing drag makeup between the main character, namely and Richard E. Grant's character. I think some of that is really well done. So my write-in vote would be for Old, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, because of the really, I think, stunning age work that's happening on these characters. Like the movie or not, I think that the makeup here really works and like really gives you that sense of melancholy at the end. But I also would love if I could pick two because I think we were less than enthusiastic about some of these nominees. I would consider one of my favorite characters of the year here, Gabriel, and I would choose Malignant. Oh, amazing. <laughs> we have some incredible horror prosthetics work going on with this creature design prosthetics it's very gruesome bloody and gross but just a perfect character in that film have you seen malignant james it's actually one i haven't seen is this the one that he's like there's a face on the back of someone's head Mm -hmm. yes i had to i remember looking it up because nick you mentioned that as like a cracked out choice on your nominations reactions Mm -hmm. i remember that and so i remember looking up malignant makeup and i was like oh okay that's actually pretty pretty stunning yeah I never got around to Malignant because of like a 
cinematic release blunder that happened last year mm. and then I just was not going to pay $30 for it. <laughs> oh no. If the price ever goes down, I highly recommend it. It's a very fun time. All right. So who should win in this category? Personal preference. Mine is coming to America. Mine is also coming to America. And so is mine. All three of us are aligned. I think that, again, like we mentioned before, just the hair and the prosthetic work, you have so many incredible looks in this movie that you can go back to. And the best work is rarely honored here. Like, I don't want to throw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom under the bus, but Pinocchio was also right there. I'm pretty sure that's who I said should win last year is Pinocchio. Absolutely. And who do we think will win? June. I say Dune, yeah. I'm with you guys. The prestige Mm -hmm. helps. This is our best picture nominee here. Like if we think about like what you said, screener at the top of the pile, you see Baron Harkonnen, it's pretty easy to vote for. And if this Mm -hmm. happens, like Donald Mowat, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Very fun. Yeah. So next up, we have best costume design. Our nominees here are Cruella, Cyrano, Dune, Nightmare Alley, and West Side Story. In our guild here, we have the Costume Designers Guild. They'll have their awards on March 9th. So they'll split their nominees up into different categories like sci-fi fantasy, period, contemporary. But the sci-fi fantasy categories helped voters choose a path when the categories stacked with period design. We will get to that in a little bit. But a good, I think a most recent example here is the example of Fantastic Beasts or of Mad Max Fury Road. Our first nominee here, we have Cruella. Costume designer is Jenny Beaven. She has won twice for A Room with a View, which is one of my favorite movies, and Mad Max Fury Road, and she's been nominated an additional eight times. What did you think of the work here, and did you have a favorite costume that you think best showcases Jenny Beaven's work? The fashion world is a daunting task to undertake, and I think Bevan just nails it. Whereas, you know, House of Gucci is also in the fashion world, but it's a completely different outlook on it. And, you know, it was obviously snubbed here. So I think one achieved influence and incorporation of previous designs and made it into its own thing. And there are just some really fantastic costumes in this film, a lot of which actually work better as stills than in the actual film, I think, because they're so detailed. And I think... Jenny Bevan was apprehensive about approaching this film because she says she's not like a fashion designer. Like she does, she does costumes. And she also mentioned a believability in, in her work in this film, that this could be something that was perhaps pulled off at the height of its era. But I have to disagree. I love these costumes because of how heightened they are. They look almost fantasy. I really do like the work in this film. And when I saw it back in May, I was like, okay, this is getting an Oscar nomination. Once you see the trash dress, hello. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have eyes, people? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. It would have cost a fortune, but it looks amazing. Yeah, that's definitely the most notable aspect for me are the costumes. I mean, it's a whole montage of Estella showing up in these outfits, taking over the Baroness. And it's just one after the other of stunning work and... Jenny Beaven is such an icon in this category. She's been around for so many years. So even in a movie like this, like Cruella, it's what I'm left thinking about. So I think Mm -hmm. that just speaks to her work, 
the trash gown for me, but also I love the flame dress. I mean, that's just so show-stopping. And once again, like drag, like hello, that is absolutely something a drag queen mm-hmm. would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the costumes here, and I I completely agree. I like the fantastical element to them, and that they don't feel like ready to wear looks, and that's okay because again, like this is one of those live action Disney prequels like lean into that a little bit and I think she did a great job there are so many looks in this movie that all work to show Estella's personality and like her burgeoning career as this fashion designer and also it's really clear she had a lot of fun with these costumes and with the period and all of the influences but each of these costumes like how you're talking about drag they aren't just pieces that you wear it feels like a moment of performance art for her which I think really goes well with the character but also with that we these fashion shows that we keep getting throughout the film the trash dress is also my favorite that was the one when I saw the movie where I thought like okay this should win costumes so our next nominee is Cyrano a film that we were all dragged to see because of its nomination for costume design you're welcome academy you're welcome MGM where were you three months ago? Anyway, I'm not bitter. Cyrano, the designer, is Massimo Cantini Parini. This is his second nomination, and he was previously nominated for Pinocchio last year, a film which at the time no one had really seen either. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline Duran, famous nominee, is also nominated alongside for designing Roxanne's costumes. She has won previously two times for Anna Karenina, a Joe Wright film, and Little Women. She's also been nominated five other times. Shall we just from the top get into our thoughts on Cyrano and then work our way down to the costume design, which I was thinking about the entire time. Who has the most to say? (laughs) So Sophia and I were both going to see this the same night. I saw it and just texted both of you, actually. I was like, oh, I have so few words, just like Christian This whole story, oh boy, I tweeted that it was like the most cancer film of all time. Just like everyone Mm -hmm. is so emotional. There's this love square happening. Love square. (laughs) There's just so much. And it felt like three hours. The music was fine. There were two that really stuck out to me. Be Overcome and Wherever I Fall. Just horribly depressing And then we get three verses. I was like, okay, we get the point. Jeez, I'm like already in the dirt with these dead people already. And it's a two-parter. There are two tracks on the album. I did like Peter. I thought he was great. Honestly, he should be nominated over somebody else. But for a period piece, like this is the most period movie we have out of these contenders. And I think this year... And that's what you we really look for in this category. There's going to be one with those hoop skirts with lots of design. And there are so many different costumes here, which is maybe why it got in too. But I was pretty underwhelmed. And usually with these types of movies, I'm wowed. I love maybe not, you know, sitting through these period movies as much as you do, Sophia, but I think experiencing them, seeing them is always fascinating to me. And I didn't really feel that here. Nothing popped out to me. I mean, maybe it just it all felt in place. So maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. What did you think of the scene where Roxanne dances with a piece of paper? Let me tell you. Oh my god. That scene 
in my theater, I had a, a wild crowd for this movie. I mean, one, it was packed. I was like, wait, all of these people apparently want to see Cyrano on a Sunday afternoon. All right, cool. I guess. Sure. But in that scene, people were cracking up. It it felt like we were at like a, a comedy show or this was like best comedy of the year. Like people did not really know how to respond to that. This is like pretty standard period fair to me. I think that if like some if a company like Focus Features had this, for example, we would be looking at nominations actually in multiple categories. Production design, makeup and hairstyling, original song potentially, Peter Dinklage. Like there was a lot of potential in this movie. It being a Joe Wright film, it is very sumptuous. Yes, I love period films, but not all period films are created equal, as I stare at my Barry Lyndon poster above me, which is definitely the look and the aesthetic that this DP, I think, was going for. I am also a fan of The National, the band, and I know that the Dessner brothers and Matt Berninger helped write a lot of these songs, and I think definitely informed the way that Peter Dinklage sort of speaks, sings them, but they are so depressing. The movie has pacing issues, I think. It's certainly not my favorite musical of the year. I will remain loyal to Annette. But yeah, it was just kind of middle of the road for me. I didn't feel much from it. And it's certainly lesser Joe Wright, I think, compared to Atonement or Pride and Prejudice. So yeah, I think costume-wise, though, there isn't anything different really here. Like in these period looks to me, it is like what you would expect, I think, from a Joe Wright film. And I think the most successful looks, there was a dress that Roxanne wore that I thought was really beautiful. It's like a blue color when she first goes to confess to Cyrano about Mm. Christian. And it has this like gorgeous corset with this boning in it. And she also has this cape with a hood that's very beautiful. So great work by Jacqueline Duran there. This is very much like her bag. I would say a fun costume that I liked. The very beginning at that show where we first meet Cyrano, there are these little lambs that are up on stage and it looks Mm -hmm. like their Mm -hmm. costumes are kind of made with tulle, this like white tulle around them. I thought that was pretty cool. I did like those. And again, like waiting to see this until today, mainly because I didn't have a choice. Like this movie was buried. Um, I was definitely looking for costumes in a similar way that I was looking to make up for coming to America. So overall I was, kind of underwhelmed by Cyrano, but I do think that the costumes were pretty beautiful. And you mentioning all those categories that it could have gotten in, I would also say cinematography could have been a dark horse, how they campaigned that. As much as I was pretty meh on the film, I was stunned by some of the shots and the lighting, Mm -hmm. these like eerie back alley shots. That was amazing. I was like your audience, Sophia. My friend yelled at me for laughing so much. I yeah. I was like, oh boy, do we need this? Oh yeah. I also had a rowdy crowd. I had a lot of like teenage couples coming to see Cyrano on Sunday night. I'm like, who is this movie for? Yeah. And then a lot of people like yelling at the screen, like trying to be like the class clown. It's like, actually, shut up! I'm here for the costume design, not for you. Um, <laughs> but overall, like the costume design does that cardinal sin where it's like. We have period designs, but we all know that humans of the modern age don't want to look at the ugly designs of the previous centuries. Let's try and make them a little bit more modern. And by doing so, you've just completely butchered the silhouettes. 
And if I see another gown that Roxanne wears that does not touch the ground, I'm going to lose it. Why do we, what are those dresses she wears? Like they look terrible. Honestly, for me, like you mentioned, Sophia, when you saw the costumes in person, that they looked dusty. I forgot that I said that. You're like, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. They did look dusty and just really like ill-fitting and also just not that like inspired. Like a lot of the men, the background dancers are just wearing linen shirts and like scrappy vests. That's like, come on. Like, like I know Massimo did Pinocchio and that's sort of his style of being a little bit like uh, boisterous. And Jacqueline Durant did a scene in Anna Karenina where she combined like so she combined like the 1850s with like the 1950s, but then in the end you had like fantastic gowns. Mm-hmm. Here, really nothing stood out to me. And Roxanne was just like, like, what was that? What was she wearing most of the time? Like we could recognize it for the era, but in the beginning when they're dueling, that was like the mm-hmm. only thing that stuck out to me. Yeah, I liked that and it too. it was slightly feminine, like it had like a satin <laughs> wrap around it. Next up, we have Dune. Our nominees here, we have Jacqueline West. This is her fourth nomination. And Robert Morgan. And this is his first nomination. 2,400 costumes. Incredible. This really is a case of just, I think, so much variety like with the costumes. And I mentioned this back on our Dune episode, but the specific costumes playing a role in the story, in the narrative. So the still suit, for example, like that's a costume that is repeatedly referenced throughout the narrative and I think makes this nomination like make sense like when you're watching it you think about that but again um just a lot of variety here especially with you have the looks of like Lady Jessica that are much more elegant and then you have soldiers and what they're wearing and you have to I think what's successful here with the costume design is the way that the costume designers communicate a sense of place, like where we are, are we on Arrakis, are we back at Caledon, and also what these costumes are saying about the people, like in that space. Mm-hmm. You've both read the novel. How are the descriptions for the actual look of the characters like in that Frank Herbert's novel? Because to me, this was like the favorite world building exercise in the film. And I was just curious, you know, after reading how Jacqueline West drew historical references from Goya and Caravaggio and Marcelles tarot cards, I was just interested if there are descriptions for, say, like costumes or looks in the actual novels. There were descriptions, I remember, of what certain characters would look like. Timothy as Paul, I think I would have pictured someone like him wearing what he wore regardless of if I'd had seen the trailer of the movie and I think too I do remember them describing the Bene Gesserit and specifically what the Bene Gesserit were wearing and that felt right to me when I saw the movie mm. additionally the still suits I thought that those again just going back to that they do describe those as well in the book um, mm. but I think that anytime yeah you're adapting something that requires that level of world building there is always like going back to the book as the core text i don't remember i would say specific references of colors i find dune to be like very muted like very gray or sandy Mm -hmm. um so any kind of like bright colors or 
like Jessica wearing the gold, for instance. Like, I don't remember that from the book or a description of a look being bold like that. Okay, that's interesting. Because I, for one, really love like the early sketches of seeing what could have been. And then you realize how actually fruitful a concept is like this and how challenging this actual palette is to achieve. But I mean, I love all the costumes in this film and a lot of it like crosses into art, I think. Like Uh there's some designs that are really just architectural, the steel suits, the chain mail that Lady Jessica wears. Mm -hmm. And then also just like fashion influences that I really admire. A lot of articles put it just like really nice ways. I read like authoritative but regal someone also described it as industrial chic Mm, i like that there's this weathered element to all their costumes but they also wear their planets and the deserts like on their sleeves i -hmm. think the ladies costumes are definitely the ones that i am drawn to like most costume design there's also these things, people saying that that chainmail dress that Lady Jessica wears might be the most expensive costume ever made, but no one can like put a price figure on it. So I'm like, is that just a rumor? Like what's what's up with that? That's probably my favorite one in the film as well. Mm-hmm. That gold dress that she wears. When she gets off that plane and she walks out into the light and it's just flowing in the wind, you're just stunned by how it looks on her. Mm-hmm. And another good moment of... Sophia, you're talking about these worlds and how that defines what the characters look like, what they're wearing. I think that first scene we really get when they're meeting on Caladan, when the Duke is signing this decree, we have all of these different characters coming together. You have the people arriving on the ship, you have the family from Caladan, and you get to see all of these different influences and different kinds of costumes. And I think that's a really great way to open this movie is you're being introduced to these characters and this new world. And before this, we get images of the Fremen and Chani in the desert. So we see so much in just a few minutes. And I think that really tells us what we're getting into. So I also love the chainmail and the golds for Lady Jessica. I'll just add, I love the blue look when she's in Caledon because I think it goes really well with the production design and just Rebecca Ferguson, another like beautiful, like angular woman with those light eyes, like the blue looks so good on her. And she has that head covering kind of veil scarf around her. It's just so beautiful. I was like, I'm excited to see everything that she wears for the rest of the movie. I also wanted to shout out just really quickly. It's, I don't know who the actual characters are, but they kind of come out of a ship all in unison and they're dressed in kind of like pods. I don't know who mm-hmm. they are though. That is amazing. They combined like 14th century papacy, like what the Catholic church was wearing at that time with this futuristic sci-fi element. And it's just like, oh my God, you were, what you've done is actually incredible. That I love that look too. That and it's it's interesting because um, Donald Moat talked about the aristocrats playing a big role in influencing a lot of the beard looks. So Oscar Isaac in particular, and the look of the Atreides family. So I like how those like the papacy, like those old institutions, really kind of were reference points throughout for them as they were doing mm-hmm. hair and makeup or costume design. I agree with you. There's so much going on in Dune, but it is cool, I think, to look at those little details and 
focus in on specific things that you like about the movie for sure. So the next nominee is Nightmare Alley. Louise Siqueira was previously nominated for The Shape of Water. What do you guys think about Nightmare Alley? Because we will be discussing it for cinematography. Specifically with costumes, I really liked everything that Kate Blanchett was wearing as Lilith. In particular, my favorite look of hers is when she actually were first introduced to her at that club where Rooney Mara and Bradley Cooper's characters are performing. And she has this dress that is sort of a traditional like strapless dress, but then it has this knot on the top that goes back into this almost like halter looking dress at first, but it's really a cape behind her. That's a theme with me. I love capes, but that is just a perfect way to understand her character. She wears a lot of velvets or satins, very like lush, elegant, opulent looks that go perfect with her beautiful angular face. Yeah, I had the exact same look for sure. Also the blouse that she wears in Mm -hmm. the office. So like, just, I don't know, textured. I just, that's what I think I wanted more from the costumes in this film, like just a little bit more dimension to them. Because a lot of them did feel very like uh, sanitized, perhaps not, but not really lived in. Especially the wardrobe that Bradley Cooper wears in the the first act of the film. But yeah, Nick, what about you? Really, anything Kate wears. I mean, she's she always looks stunning. Anyway, I love the scene when she's in her office with Stanton and she like unbuttons her dress to show him her scar on her chest. I think that. Again, all of the dresses fit her so well. Another moment, I really liked Rooney Mara too. I thought the end, again, it's some of just the imagery of what's happening though is the very end when she has the blood on her hands and she's wearing that wedding dress with those huge shoulder pads. Mm -hmm. I think that's stunning in the red coat she wears over it. And also I saw a side-by-side from the original and her character of her in that electric chair and how they transformed that into this purple two-piece from this movie. So I think a lot of things pop. Everything fits the character really, really well. But I think overall, there's less of like, oh yeah, this one thing was like my ultimate favorite. I think what I missed a lot was that perhaps the color palette that existed in The Shape of Water, where we were dealing with a lot of greens and a lot of blues and the wardrobe the production design was based entirely around that for me a lot of the costumes get lost underneath the production design which for me is absolutely the standout element from this film Mm -hmm. and one that i think it should win but yeah i had house of gucci here i i didn't have nightmare alley uh, (laughs) getting in but i'm happy it did our last nominee here we have west side story our costume designer is paul taswell fellow ohioan this is his first nomination. What did you guys think of the costumes in West Side Story? And did you have a particular favorite look in the film? I think all of our favorite look is Anita's America dress. Because mm-hmm. I noticed you two wrote that down. I did as well. Yeah. With the red underling, like, mm-hmm. incredible. For me, West Side Story designing it anew, it felt like sacrilege to get rid of the original lavender blue color palette. To me, that's like definitive of the original version. But I think that Paul Taswell, who I should mention also designed the costumes for Hamilton, 
did a really good job at making them a little bit more individualist this this time around mm -hmm. that they are a part of this gang this wider community but they have their own personalities a big thing i like is that during the american sequence a lot of the women are wearing capri pants as opposed to dresses they are mm -hmm. working women after all i really do like that and just to the point about this being hamilton's costume designer he has a thing of making the choreography work with with his costumes and there's a lot of whips and fans that had to take place you know like they were dancing in these dresses like you know tears that sort of thing that's like that's gonna happen but i think they're just also just really well constructed like he has accommodated that and yeah i mean i just it's really good to see him nominated here yeah, it's really about how the dress flows on Anita when she's dancing. I was a little surprised by the nomination just because I think of the Sharks, the Jets, very gritty, but also that contrasting with these gowns that we have, um, Anita, Maria, these spaces, like when she's singing, I feel pretty, and the period sets that we get. What about you, Sophia? One thing that I really liked was that during our screening, after the screening, we had a Q&A and Paul Taswell was there and he talked a lot about the movement of the costumes and how the costumes had to work with the choreography. And that I think is something that you definitely see here first and foremost with Anita's dress. I, like you, was a stickler for some reason. I was very stubborn. I was like, I want my purple Anita dress. Like that is the iconic Anita dress. So I was just a little shocked that they went with yellow, but the yellow suits her personality perfectly. I mean, she is just this fiery soul who is thrilled to be in America and it goes so well with that song. So I did really like that. I think just another costume that I loved was when Maria and Tony meet up for the first time and they kind of go on that little date and she's wearing that blouse and the cute little like short-sleeved cardigan. It goes, I think, really well with her as this kind of very young woman. She's wearing a lot of items that are white usually. We have that white dress at the beginning, this like purity color that we get with this Juliet character throughout the beginning, but with little pops of color that I think remind us, especially with reds or maroons of her Puerto Rican heritage and being a Latina um, in New York. So I liked those details too. And I think the costumes are really successful in this movie. So what would your write-in vote be? Okay, my writing is Spencer. I know that Janelle had a huge involvement mm -hmm. in the costumes for this film, so I don't really know who's credited here, but I absolutely adore the costumes in Spencer. They capture regality, they capture melancholy, incredible. And just that shot of Kristen Stewart's Diana lying across the bathroom floor in a dress that is absolutely just suffocating her like the institution is is such a powerful image. And I would have loved to see Spencer in more craft. And I think the costume design would have been a great place to start, honestly. I agree. I think that's a great pick. I love those iconic Diana costumes. And of course, you're right, like Kristen Stewart, Chanel ambassador. I can't wait to see what Chanel she wears to the Oscars, by the way. Oh, yeah. Nick, what about you? My write-in votes for Green Knight. Getting it in somewhere, I think, as a period film, you know, we we go back very far and the belt keeps coming back to mind. Mm -hmm. But everything that Dev is wearing, we have lots of armor. Again, kind of this type of movie that you see or look for in this category. Yeah. 
And my write-in vote, I'm just, again, fully in this movie's camp. It's Mark Bridges for Licorice Pizza. I know we get a lot of, like, period looks that are, like, the bigger dresses, like the hoop skirts, the fashion statements. And here, I love how much the clothing really brings out these characters. I love, like, Alana's purple corduroys or her, like, long-sleeve pattern dress that she wears when she starts working on the campaign, which is also the dress she wears to dinner with Gary at the beginning. I just find myself wanting to replicate, like, all of her 70s looks, jewelry, clothing, everything. But I also just love, like, Gary's white suit at the end, Bradley Cooper's white ensemble as John Peters. I think it's really good work, and I will always prefer 70s costumes to nearly everything else. And who do you guys think should win? Dune. I would say Dune as well. I'm going to go with Cruella. I liked those costumes. I think that the the range maybe in Dune is stronger, but mm. yeah, I'm going to go with <laughs> Cruella. It was just my first instinct here. And who do you think will win? Dune. I also think it might. I just changed my answer to Dune. I, I'm so torn with like Cruella and Dune, but I think that in a similar way to my reasoning for makeup, like if it wins makeup, why wouldn't it win costumes here? Mm-hmm. It's that prestige, yeah. best picture contender. Are you also June, Nick? I'm giving Dune a slight edge over Cruella. I'm kind of thinking back to Ma Rainey's in a way. I know it wasn't a best picture nominee, but it did take both of these categories. So I would say Dune could easily have them both as well. Hmm. I only say June because I think just based on past experience with these categories when you have a film that works in a completely different genre to the others here we have sci-fi fantasy the rest are all period designs i think it really gives voters a clearer mind when it comes to actually casting their ballot and they gravitate to the one that sticks out the most Mm -hmm. so yeah that's why i have june winning so next up we have best cinematography our nominees are dune Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and West Side Story. Our guild here, we have the ASC, and their awards will be announced on March 20th. So our first nominee, Dune, Greg Frazier, he was previously nominated for Lion. And I know we've mentioned him a few times on the pod. He's also the Batman's DP, which is out or coming out very, very soon. So excited for that and his work there. I could probably go on and on and on about the cinematography here. I love the shots, how big this movie is and feels, and it's shot so beautifully. Denis has a vision that he constantly uses throughout his films, and maybe this is more similar to Blade Runner 2049. We have some desert shots there, but showcasing the sand, the spice, but also these characters and close-ups and using light and darkness in very menacing ways and using all of the components at his disposal to showcase these worlds, these locations that are so different from one another. Dune is definitely your movie, Nick. James, what do you think? I I don't like the cinematography in Dune at Yikes. all. Like I know Villeneuve has, sorry, I'm just going to call him Villeneuve from now on, but Villeneuve has a very distinguished style that's like desaturated, The lighting is very natural to the actual element because we are in a desert planet, you know, where's our light source coming from? It all makes sense. But I know what the director of photography, Greg Frazier, who's one of two Australian cinematographers nominated this year, the other one being Ari Wagner. 
I, I know what he's going for, but personally, it doesn't really work for me. But I think it also benefited from like a huge IMAX release where you are just seeing every single shot in the best format possible. I agree. Nick, you know how I feel about this cinematography and just, I mm-hmm. think it works well, like because it's such a large scale, right? It's such a grand scale. What we have here, you have to show the worms and the ornithopters and really kind of get that feel. But for me, it is just a lot of landscape and it's just not the the style that I would prefer. It's just very, yeah, dis- desaturated and... I think my favorite shot in the movie, though, that I do really like is a more internal moment. It's when Timothy Chalamet as Paul is standing behind these kind of spindly lights. And it's when he almost gets stung by this drone bug. You see his face kind of in the shadows with these really beautiful lights. And I loved that shot in the movie. I think when you're learning more about a character through a unique lighting choice or a framing choice, that is really what I want over, I would say, like large scale shots of the desert. What do you think of Mad Max Fury Road cinematography, which also incorporated desert? That one, I actually like a lot. I think because... I think because of how the characters are used and you get more of a sense of movement there than I think here. I feel that we're just getting a lot of establishing shots like in the world building, whereas in Mad Max, you really get that dynamic feel. And I think in particular of that shot of Charlize, just like on her knees. Love, love that shot. Just stunning. John Seal is the DP for that one. He's another Australian and he did the English Patient. But yeah, I also do like the grading in Mad Max Fury Road a little bit more. Favorite shots, the shots with Zendaya, I really do like when the sun is behind her. Mm -hmm. Like it is very ethereal. I know a lot of people will say it just looks like a perfume commercial. Mm -hmm. But I do actually like that style a lot. And it also just captures dreams really well. Like no one has dreams like that. Then it also makes sense that that is like a message from the deep. I don't know. Right. I could list a few, but one that sticks out in my head is the wide shot at the very long dinner table when the Baron glides along the table and the Duke is about to bite down on his tooth, but you see them both at opposite ends of this table in very formidable ways, but also Oscar is so fragile and broken and naked. I was just going to say, are you going to say he's naked? (laughs) That is a really good shot, though. That's probably my favorite mm-hmm. production design in the movie, I would say. So, mm-hmm. Next up, we have Nightmare Alley. Our cinematographer here is Dan Lauston, who's previously nominated for The Shape of Water. Guillermo uses a lot of the same collaborators. He has a very like close-knit team. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. that about him. We talked about this with production design with our interview with Tamara Deverell, but you have like two very distinct worlds here. You have the carnival, and then you have this Art Deco Buffalo, New York. What did you guys think of the cinematography here and the way that this movie was shot? And do you have a favorite shot? I really don't like that digital Steadicam look. I don't think I'm alone in it either. I think it's a huge divisive element with Del Toro films in that it comes across as very sterile, even if that's not exactly what's intended. I was amazed that there were some shots that looked carbon copy replica of the shape of water 
you have Stanton in the bus with Bokeh in the background on the, the rainy window. I'm like, that. we had the exact same shot in Shape of Water. There's also the club, the exterior shot of the club um, where Stanton's about to perform his charlatan gig. I swear there was an, another shot just like that in Shape of Water with the cinema that's underneath their apartment. I'm very much in the David Fincher way of shooting a film where camera movement signals motivation. If you have your camera constantly floating around a scene, where are we in the character's mindset? Like we need something that's a little bit more grounded. The way Fincher will move a camera slowly up to imply a thought, you know, is just a much better way of shooting a film, in my opinion. Also, why did we go for such a digital look if our influence is film noir? Keyword Mm -hmm. film. If I had to pick a favorite shot, of course, it's going to be one of Bradley Cooper. And it's going Mm. to be like one of the first shots I think that came out. Not the bathtub. (laughs) No. So silly. (laughs) The flames? It's the shot of him in the chair with the flames behind him. That feels very Del Toro film noir. Absolutely. My favorite is like Blanchette and her three personalities in the mirror. That's like such a modern flair on film noir. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. So Dan and Guillermo have worked together before on three films, Mimic, Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water. And I think as collaborators, they both really like to focus on the lighting. And that's something I loved here with the cinematography is creating these dark shadows and not using tons of light, like using one source instead of multiple. But I think that helps create so much depth and works alongside the production design really well, which is my favorite aspect. I would probably say my favorite shot is like one of the crane shots of the carnival Mm -hmm. where we see this depth, this realism to a lot of the production design, the carousel, the Ferris wheel, but it's just a beautiful and also dark and brooding landscape. Mm -hmm. You really get a feel for the genre that you're in just by the lighting and the look of a set and nothing even has to be said. Next up, we have The Power of the Dog. Our DP here is Ari Wegner, and she is the second woman to ever be nominated for cinematography at the Oscars. She also just picked up a very important precursor. She won the British Society of Cinematographers Award, which is actually a better indicator of Oscar success than the ASC, which is, I think, what we usually look at. Previous winners here, we have 1917, Blade Runner 2049, Mank. You get the gist. Mm -hmm. I have been on the record for months now about the power of the dog and how much I love it. And I will definitely talk about my favorite shots. But what do you guys think of the cinematography here by Ari Wegener? And do you have a favorite shot? My favorite shot's like a paragraph. Like I couldn't, I couldn't Mm -hmm. pick one from the very first moment that like the shots appear on the film after the credit scroll Mm -hmm. part one, I think it was cattle Mm -hmm. walking around. And I'm pretty sure that's when I had the moment that, this film is probably being nominated, will most likely win. But I'm still unsure how the Academy takes Westerns overall. We saw Nomadland being snubbed last year in exchange for a black and white film, which was had fairly okay cinematography. Like I wasn't a huge, I wasn't taken away by the visual elements of Mank. But more to Ari Wegener's work, who's the other Australian. I have to shout that out just because you shout out Ohioans mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> understandable i think she captures just like the loneliness on the frontier really well this toxicity that lies underneath too 
And it has all the hallmarks of a Western, like what we'd expect with Western cinematography, but has this really modern flair to it, which I love because think about how we shoot Westerns nowadays with something like News of the World, which is a very Mm -hmm. traditional take on a Western. Nomadland was a very new take and one that although took elements of Terrence Malick also had its form style as well. So mm-hmm. I love every shot in this film pretty much. Like I have a few that I want to shout out. I guess I'll start with just like Phil and Peter in the barn when he's grabbing mm-hmm. him by the neck and also when they're sharing the cigarette. That's definitely a mood thing as well. Like that's camping yes. really just like showing her chops. But the way it's shot is just so tense, very erotic as well. Um, mm-hmm. I do love the light reflecting on Phil near the end of the film where he's a bit sick. To me, that is like the most Hitchcockian shot in the entire film. Like I could totally see that happening to like a wrong man in a Hitchcock film. The light across mm-hmm. the eyes, like fate oh, yeah. is coming. Your fate is coming. I will say that Ari and Jane are just an incredible duo. I think they work so well together here. And one thing that Ari really focused on, kind of like Dan with lighting, is that she worked with color, not only of the landscape, but to highlight the characters. And I think that was impeccably done also using the costumes to emphasize that, but also just using the cinematography as a way to imbue the psychology of the characters is just like crazy to think of, but they do it so well. My favorite shot is also from the barn. I mean, that's my favorite scene of the year. No, it's not of Benedict naked in the lake from that like hip shot right above the water. It's a good Um, shot though. Like just from a DP, like that's a, mm -hmm. it's a great shot. Yeah. I have so many that I'm going to run through. I mean, I love so many things about this movie, but I love when Ari Wegner keeps the camera inside the house and we get the shot of Phil walking outside, but we, we're we situated inside the house, but we see him walking by outside of the house and you really get this sense of him being this master of the land. Like this is a space that he very much controls, but you also have to remember that internal world of the character, which is much darker. It's much more claustrophobic. And it's it's a space that we don't need we don't necessarily know. I love the shot of Rose when she's playing the piano and the camera is situated on the stairs looking down at her. And also of when Rose has the dinner with the governor and his wife and with George and Phil's parents, and they get up to leave her at the table and we get the shot of her at the table and it's her back to the camera and you just feel that loneliness of the character and you just feel again like she's in this world that's not really hers she's kind of an invader in this space and you just get again that tension that's on her Mm -hmm. I also my favorite shot though favorite favorite shot of the entire movie is Phil laying down like in nature, draping Bronco Henry's handkerchief over his face. It's an incredibly beautiful moment. It feels, it's like a moment that we shouldn't be watching. It feels like something forbidden or something that is very much a personal moment for him. And Jane Campion is this very tactile filmmaker. I always describe her that way of 
how we think about objects in her film. And this this handkerchief that belonged to Bronco Henry, this character that lingers like Rebecca's ghost Mm. um, in the movie. And it makes you wonder, right? Like, is Peter the voyeur later in the scene? Are we the voyeurs as audience members, like watching Phil connected to the earth and like feeling comfortable in this personal naked moment? It leaves you like feeling a lot of things for that character and for that film. And I think that Ari Wegner captures it perfectly. Yeah, a really intrinsic shot. And I especially love that shot that was garnering comparisons to Beau Travail, where it's the mm-hmm. shirtless men in the desert dust, I don't know, getting changed. And it's like very uh-huh. similar to Claire Denis' film. So our next nominee is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Our DP is Bruno Delbanel. This is his sixth nomination in saying that he hasn't won yet. But I think this film, the cinematography here, works really well with the production design. They really go hand in hand. So what do you guys think about the cinematography here? Well, I just think it's like really beautiful, really Mm -hmm. defined and artistic. And it's interesting because we have a play that hasn't been changed in centuries, but you can have this fully fledged cinematic interpretation of it thanks to this cinematography. My favorite shot, personally, is definitely the witches looking down on that plank, just because it's, like, terrifying, but also, like, strangely Mm -hmm. intoxicating. I also just really want to quickly share what someone said to me when we were watching Belfast, which I think is just so funny because we had so many black and white (laughs) films from this year. Mm -hmm. They said, well, the black and white was a bit confusing because I thought it was going to be a tragedy. And I'm like, if you're telling me that The Tragedy of Macbeth is the only valid black and white film from this year, then I agree. Because <laughs> we had too many. <laughs> there were quite a few. And it's funny that you mentioned Belfast with that shot of the witches, because a shot in Belfast that did not work for me was that low angle shot looking up at the family mm-hmm. when they're all standing there. Yeah, That just felt so silly to me. But with the witches, it works very, very well. It's very scary. Mm. I love the cinematography in the tragedy of Macbeth. I think that it breathes new life into a play that is centuries old at this point. It is clearly influenced by German expressionist films. We look at Wells also and his Macbeth, very clear influence there. But I think that when I think about Bruno Delbanel's work, I don't necessarily think of how he captures faces in close-up. I think more about how he captures landscape and how he captures the production design and this world that he's built. But here, I think that the faces are fascinating. When you get those close-ups of Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth or that like weathered, worn look of Denzel's Macbeth, it makes this tragedy like, connected to the age of the characters feel so much darker, feel so much more tragic, I think, mm. than if we were capturing younger faces or younger actors. So I'm glad that he didn't shy away from capturing their faces that are lit phenomenally well, very much in shadows. Sometimes you'll just get half of a character's face that isn't obscured, but you can tell exactly what that character is going through based on a single shot, which is always what you want from your DPs. Mm, Absolutely. And my favorite shot, it's one that I've talked about all year as well, of Lady Macbeth standing on the cliffside right as she's about to go mad and we get that the long shot of her and her hair blowing in the wind it's just absolutely gorgeous it looks like wes anderson a bit definitely could say that in the french dispatch (laughs) 
yeah, stunning work here. Jeez, some of my favorites. Um, I've talked about a few before. I think one of the opening shots of The Witches, we've talked about the puddle shot. Mm-hmm. A great collaboration with visual effects mm-hmm. here. Another one here, the dolly shot as Denzel is walking towards the door and the dagger, the handle. Mm-hmm. I love that. One of my favorite passages, too, from mm-hmm. the play and in the movie. And our final nominee for Best Cinematography is West Side Story. The DP is Janusz Kaminski. He won twice before for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. And he's been nominated four other times. Now, he's sort of a mainstay for Spielberg. What did you think of his interpretation? It is, I think, a little over the top for me. It's very showy and like the lens flares that are used. Also, I don't love that a movie from 1961 that is so colorful feels so drained of color at moments. Mm -hmm. I think that I wanted more color throughout, but the moments where we get color, I think are very, very beautiful. I love the, and yes, this is over the top as well, the shot of Anita and Bernardo kissing through the fabric Mm -hmm. and you see the light from behind and Nick, you mentioned the puddle shot with the tragedy of Macbeth. The puddle shot here is my favorite when Tony is singing Maria and when he sings the line, say it soft and it's almost like praying. And we get the shot of the puddle and the lights from the building are reflected into the puddle and it almost looks like stained glass that you would see in a church. I thought that was really, really beautiful. So there are a lot of shots that I like in it. Is it my style? Not really, but I do think when they choose to show the colors pop, that's when it works best for me. It's just a little old school. Yeah, I mean, I think it looks like the closest we get to that classic Hollywood style with modern technology, Mm -hmm. and I do appreciate it Mm -hmm. for that. Oh my God, there's so much lens flare. Like, I didn't realize that until someone pointed that out. But my favorite shot is probably just the first time we see Maria at the gym you know, it just feels like that fusion of old and new. It's very similar to the original shot. And I just love that. I think it's an anamorphic lens. I don't know. I don't want to get like too technical, but I just oh. love that style. And I really do like how you mentioned when the colors actually pop and it's not desaturated, which for a lot of the film, it is. I think it's hard to when you're remaking such a remarkable film it's like how are we going to do it justice but also put a spin on it and i think making it darker being a little bit more showy yes is where they went and it works here i think the sets are quite a bit darker as well my favorite shot is from that trailer we get from the salt mine when the jets and the sharks are walking towards each other and it looks like teeth like they're about to eat each other Mm -hmm. and the light the stark lighting that they have I think that's beautiful it's a great way to totally use that frame I agree what would your write-in vote be I know we have so many options I think in this category (laughs) mine is Claire Maton for Spencer I love this pick I actually used a Taylor Swift lyric to describe it, which is embarrassing, but it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. That is the aesthetic of Mm -hmm. this movie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with Edward Grau from Passing. He was nominated at the Spirit Awards, and I think it's stunning work. It really captures the subject material, but also the characters and who these two women are and the separate lives that they've led since they've been in school together grew up together 
I think it's absolutely beautiful. Another black and white film, yes, mm. but I think it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this movie warrants the black and white. It goes with it thematically. And my pick would actually be Andrew Droz Palermo for The Green Knight. I love the cinematography. I know we keep bringing up The Green Knight throughout these episodes and even today, but it absolutely deserved nominations in so many categories. There's so many just absolutely stunning shots that when I saw this mm-hmm. movie took my breath away when he meets the the ghost of the like headless woman in that forest and she wants him to retrieve her head from the lake there's this gorgeous shot of them together and I always think of that when I think of this movie so if you haven't seen the green knight yet if you can't tell we really recommend it mm-hmm. <laughs> and who do you think should win I'll go first I think Ari Wegner should make history and be our first woman to win in this category the work that she did here her partnership with Jane Campion brought these characters to life and also made me just understand the mood of this film and she and Campion just felt so in sync to me throughout this so I will say Ari deserves it I'll say Bruno Delbanel yeah I mean it's hot like it's a stacked category yeah it's really close I'm gonna go with Ari Wegner here I really think she deserves Mm -hmm. it too who do we think will win I'm going with Ari. I think she's going to make history. I feel like there's a good narrative for her here. There is a strong correlation between director and DP. It doesn't always happen. didn't happen last year, but it tends to. And again, that BSC precursor we got. I really hope Netflix continues to push her mm-hmm. and that she pulls it off. It would be mm-hmm. a very, very cool win. Yeah, currently I have June winning, but I think Ari Wagner does have a really good chance here and i would love to change that prediction i do feel like ari wagner could pull off an upset kind of like last year with mank i know it's kind of the opposite way but in a way that dune has been the front runner i do feel like ari could pull it off and i'm again hoping that she does (laughs) well i'm glad that we went through these categories today makeup and hairstyling costume design and cinematography i think this is where a lot of times you really get to see the beauty in these films. But James, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so nice to have you on. Where can everyone find you and your podcast? Thank you for having me, firstly. And you can find Out of Oscar on Twitter at Out of Oscar Pod. You can also listen to it uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you're going to give it a go, check out my inside Lewin Davis episode where I was joined by Nick and Sophia to talk about that film Oscar Isaac and the 2013 depressing best picture race (laughs) so yeah check that out but yeah thank you once again for having me on I'm really grateful yeah I'm glad you were here this was great a few more categories down Mm -hmm. next time on Oscar Wilde we'll be talking about acting categories we'll also be having Kevin Jacobson on the pod to talk about these i'm excited for his thoughts especially in best actress obviously for his podcast but should be fun talking about these and we'll have all of the sag winners by then so i think this will be a great convo definitely it'll be great having kevin back i know he's eager to get out of the 1940s where there's a lot of rubber stamping <laughs> happening for him right now in his watches so it'll be good to have him back again 
Thank you, James, for being here. And for our show, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. We will see you very soon. Thank you.